Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to either view this on YouTube or listen to us on iTunes or Spotify. We always want to hear from you. Let us know how we're doing. You can reach me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net, fredjeffsmith at cox.net. Just drop me a note to let me know how we're doing with... uh, Uh, the Thrive Podcast. We are in year three, and I believe that this is episode four of year three. And I am honored and privileged to have uh, as my guest today, uh, uh, Mr. Dennis Blunt, uh, who is uh, an attorney, uh, who is a uh, civil uh, litigator, who is an activist in our community, who is a deacon in our church, who is the head of our charitable foundation, who is a husband and a father. Dennis, thank you for taking the time to come and share in the Thrive Podcast. I am privileged to have been asked. Yes, sir. uh, I have uh, followed some of those who have have been in this seat, and I I wish I had a called them up before I, I sat here to, <laughs> to, to find out what my pastor was going to do to me when I sat here. Nothing harmful <laughs> at all. Let's start with this. You are from a small community uh, in North Louisiana, from Winsboro, Louisiana. Uh, how did a young man from Winsboro, Louisiana uh, make his trek to Baton Rouge, Louisiana and become uh, a leading attorney in one of uh, the most prestigious law firms in our community? I, it's a, a Southern University. I, I um, attended uh, law school at Southern and uh, was um, attracted to to Baton Rouge to to make a home. Actually, I got a position with a, a small law firm here, uh, Hammonds and Seals, and there was the matter of. After Southern uh, having having brought me here, there was there was also a young lady that I thought uh, that I might be able to get back uh, to Baton Rouge, and uh, I, I did, and we've been here ever since. <laughs> That's your wife, Valerie. That is my wife, Valerie. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So, how did you choose law? It was. Um, I remember at my my youngest. I cannot remember how old I was, but it, during the '70s, there was a a movie followed by a TV series, The Paper Chase. I remember it. I I, I watched Kingsville be real cruel to people, and I said, you know, I, I wouldn't mind having a fellow beat up on me. Like that. <laughs> so I, I uh, he was a Harvard law professor on that show, and that interested me in law. Um, that show. And then there was a later experience. I said, I, I saw the trunk close on a Jaguar yeah. on another television show. And that was the trunk that started that L.A. law theme music. <laughs> and uh, I think Blair Underwood uh, suggested to me that, that that might be something that might interest you. Yes, sir. So your choice to go into law... Uh, was probably uh, one of the most important decisions that you could have ever possibly made with regard to your future, your career, your wife. Your wife is also an attorney. Uh, and you all are the parents of two wonderful children. Uh, what is it like to practice law? You practice law at a very large law firm with offices uh, all over the country and literally all over the world. Uh, but you practice law in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is a relatively small it's a community. Small market. Yes. What's it like to be a lawyer in, in a community like Baton Rouge? Baton Rouge is, um, and my perspective is a bit different than, than a lot because I have, I have previewed this with some that argue a point that say I am really wrong. Uh, Baton Rouge for me was interesting in that um, 
I think you could push to the front of the line if you had the gumption to mm-hmm. uh, and actually get there. I think larger markets, I don't know that I would have had the same, you know, reached the same results. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was as uh, for a person from a, a, a smaller place to be able to come here, um, you know, meet the folks and develop the type of relationships that have, uh, I guess, benefited me and my family over the long haul. Uh, Baton Rouge seemed to be a community that that was welcoming to that. Mm-hmm. Some would argue that they've not had that same experience, mm-hmm. uh, and I respect that. But for me, it, uh, it it's been a different sort of place. So. The, the the work that you do here allows you the opportunity or gives you uh, access to some very significant uh, groups, civic groups within this community. Uh, you are the past uh, chairman of the board of the Baton Rouge Area Foundation. Uh, you work uh, with and serve on a board of the Animal Alliance, I believe. Uh, and you are currently the president of the Baton Rouge Bar association uh how do you juggle husband father law practice church because you're also deeply involved here at Chicago. how do you juggle all of that sometimes not well <laughs> but <clears throat> what i have um what i have what i figured out early on was um i i i, I sort of picked my spots uh, that I thought allowed me to have my family with me. Uh, my family is with me in church. Mm-hmm. When I go to board, various board functions, uh, other folks might not have their kids there, but I wanted my kids exposed both to those people mm-hmm. and those places mm-hmm. um, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which the relationships that my kids could develop. But also, I wanted... Um, I wanted, I, I did something that my father did for me in a little bit of a different fashion. Uh, Sundays after church in Winsboro, uh, he would drive us around to various communities mm-hmm. within our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, it, he spent time showing me um, something. I remember one of uh, Charles T. Smith's sermons, and the title of the sermon was, What Would You Rather? Well, my my dad was showing me uh, just that. What yeah. would what would I rather? And I wanted my kids to have that same sort of experience. So I I picked my spots in places that I could sneak my kids into, and they That's could great. be exposed to everything that I was being exposed to. Yeah. And believe it or not, since it a lot of it was not my background, uh, they were learning at the same time I was learning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think it has benefited them. It's interesting you say that because. Uh my father did the same thing, not not on Sundays, uh, but at least twice a year. We had to get in the car, and as a family, we drove all over the city. And he took us to places where, frankly, you didn't see a whole lot of folk who looked like us. Uh, I, I'll never forget the first time we drove through Jefferson Place. I never thought only one family could live in a house <laughs> that big. Uh, but he wanted us to see what the possibilities were, what what the potential was. And, and I find it interesting that you said your father did the same thing. You come from a rather large family. Talk, talk about your family background. I have, um, I have. Uh, let's see, there's Shirley, James, Sam, Bert, and me. I have five siblings. We have an interesting blended family. Um, and I have a whole host of cousins. We were a um, in the country. Um, um, my, my father, you know, grabbed every male child he could to work the heck out of them on our farm <laughs> in the summer. Mm-hmm. So I have a whole host of, in addition to that group, a bunch of cousins that that basically called me brother because they spent every summer with me. Um, um, uh, that's another story. Mm-hmm. They got paid. I didn't, <laughs> which, which was a, a real bone of contention. Well, you got paid in a different way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 
Work, working a farm, that means that, that, that you're not uh, afraid of hard work. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm not an outdoors person. Don't, don't, don't care for it at all. Uh, I'm, I'm not good with my hands at all. That, that, that's not my skill set. But I'm sure that growing up the way that you did, you learned that nothing was going to just be given to you. you you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to earn it. And uh, I'm sure that that has stayed with you throughout your career. It has. I, and and my, my dad, in addition to f- farming, was not how he, he fed us. It was uh, folks around wondered why he farmed, because he gave away everything that we pretty much produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an educator. He was a principal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but... Um, I think it was an outdoor classroom for all the kids that that came our way, mm-hmm. uh, both related to it, me and not. He um, and everything was a lesson. As an example, when I when I voiced concern over loudly voiced concern over whether I got paid or not, as an example that immediately comes to mind, he let me go to work for an uncle who uh, owned a business and. Uh, and I quickly returned to <laughs> my uncle did plumbing and electrical work, and I I, uh, I cleaned a grease trap or two, and 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 I came home and I smelled like I didn't want to smell, so I, I think I'd go home and farm for this. I got you. I understand. <laughs> I understand. But it was real work. It mm-hmm. was. Uh, it was. It was. It was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are currently the president of the Baton Rouge Bar Association. I'm assuming that the Baton Rouge Bar Association is a subset of the Louisiana State Bar Association, which is a subset of the American Bar Association. What is the actual work of the Bar Association with regard to attorneys and then with regard to the larger community? The bar itself, the Baton Rouge Bar in particular, has any number of, of programs. I guess it um, one real focus is serving as a catalyst for uh, folks to collectively uh, provide free, free services um, in an organized fashion to a community that needs a whole lot of free services. Mm-hmm. We have a uh, we live in a poor state, and Baton Rouge is a um, Every so often you see an article written about the the gulf between those that have in Baton Rouge and those that, that do not. Right. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of need for, for pro bono services. There's a lot of need for um, other types of things that are uniquely provided by lawyers. Um, and I think um, the Baton Rouge Bar does a very fine job of providing those services. Historically, within law, uh, there was a racial divide that existed where you had the American Bar Association, which was predominantly and at one time perhaps totally white, and the National Bar Association, which was predominantly or perhaps totally black. Uh, still today, there is a National Bar Association and an American Bar Association. Uh, can you help us to understand the difference in the scope of work between the two? I can. I, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I, there's a National Bar Conference. There's a commercial law section of the National Bar is meeting in New Orleans right now. And okay. I actually wish I were there. I have long-standing relationships developed, uh, national relationships with members of the National Bar. The National Bar is, I guess, it is... You know, to to use a bad analogy, you know, it's it is just like, um, you know, notions of the body of Christ, and then there is the black convention that represents a set of congregations mm-hmm. within the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, the National Bar is and has been and will be um, sort of the vanguard for. Uh, all that, that that needs to happen for folks of color. Now, and you, it's interesting you mention that because when I started practicing law, I did start practicing in a majority law firm. And um, 
I quickly learned because of what I was doing and uh, and at the time that I started doing it, I would not see a whole lot of folks of color uh, in my office or in the courtrooms mm -hmm. because, you know, at that time, a lot of black lawyers congregated on the criminal floors of the 19th Judicial District Court, mm -hmm. and there was a separation between the floors and, you know, civil rule day. I didn't see brothers and sisters very often, so I, I made it a point to make certain that I was a member of the Louis A. Martinet Legal Society, okay. um, which is an affiliate of the National Bar. Okay. Um, why? I wanted to make certain that a couple of things. One was um, I had no illusions that I would be in that setting for the entirety of my career. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, most of the black lawyers that I uh, practiced with figured I had a five-year run tops uh, and told me so. They put that out there. Yeah, yeah they told me. Yeah, you, you know, you know I, give, wow. I give you five years. Wow. Um, and uh, I wanted to make certain I had a home to go to. Sure. Um, in addition to that, um, I wanted to make certain also that I gave other folks exposure to the things that I was being exposed mm -hmm. to. Um, you know, just the the understanding of how other folks operated their businesses, how they developed a practice, how they maintained the sort of uh, business relationships that would net them, you know, sort of the, the longevity that uh, other firms seem to have. They had firms that lasted, you know, they're generational firms. As an example, the firm I'm with now is 160 plus years old. Um, and you're not just with the firm, you're a partner in I, the firm. I am a partner yeah. in the firm. So I wanted to make certain that I, I benefited myself, had a home to go to when, right. when folks tossed me out the door, <laughs> if and when it occurred. It never happened. <laughs> Never, never happened. Uh, Tell me this. You've, you've been a member of Shiloh for a long time. Don't know exactly how many years. I, I say it 30, but I know it's been a long time. Shiloh has a lot of lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned Louis Marnett Society. Michael Victorian, uh, who's also a member of Shiloh, is, is the current president of the Marnett Society. Jackie Nash, uh, who is a professor of law up at uh, Southern University Law Center, as as as. Indeed, you are. You are an adjunct professor up there also. Uh, Michael Jefferson, who is the chairman of our deacon ministry, is uh, with the federal court, federal prosecutor. There are a lot. My, my sister, who, who, <laughs> who, who is a lawyer, there, there are a bunch of lawyers. There, there are five either active or retired judges who are members of Shallow. What do you think it is that attracts lawyers to Shiloh? You know, there is a, um, this works for me. This might not work for everybody else, but um, th there are a set of circumstances that you encounter in the practice of law. You deal with everybody's problems all day long, mm -hmm. everybody else's problems all day long. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be at a place that understood that, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting beat up all week long. I need something when I need something when I come here on Sunday. Mm -hmm. I come ready to be filled. I I come tank darn near empty. Uh, and I needed something that spoke to me a word that could help me uh, go within the the walls and doors of the places that I had to encounter and deal with the things that I deal with. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's what I sought and that's what I, I have found. And I wanted to make certain uh, as I married and had young folks that uh, they understood the value of that and uh, hopefully will we'll gravitate towards a place here or wherever they may land that mm -hmm. does the same thing for them. Mm -hmm. Um, you were raised in the church. I, yes. I know that for a fact. Uh, your your family had deep roots in the church up in Winsboro. Uh, 
you and your wife uh, have deep roots here in Shiloh, and you've raised your children here uh, in in the church. Over time, as as uh, opportunities to uh, branch out have taken place, there has been a fracture. Perhaps that's a negative word, but there's been a separation that has taken place within the black church. Uh, more traditional churches, which is where I would count Shiloh, uh, have have had to contend with more contemporary type churches that seem to attract younger people. Uh, you, you and I are generally the same age, mm-hmm. but you have children. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever discussed this with your kids and 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 what they feel? with regard to church, uh, because at some point they're going to be making their own decisions as opposed to uh, you making the decision or, or you and your wife making the decision for them. Have you all ever discussed their attitudes about church? I'm always in a search to understand what it is that would cause young people to venture out to a different kind of worship experience from the one that uh, is more... Uh, characteristic of Shiloh? You know, I um, so far I have not experienced that. They have not. I mean, my daughter longs to be at, at home at her church. Um, they have, she has worshiped other places um, with friends mm-hmm. in town, know where they worship. Um, but um, she she values uh i think the experience she has here it is uh it is what nourishes her um i do believe uh um there are aspects of the order of service at other spots mm-hmm. that that are, are attractive to them but ultimately it comes down to um you know what what feels like home mm-hmm. Um, and so far, I, I think um, Shiloh has all the attributes of of what feels like where they ought to be. Uh, whether that will always be, um, I don't know. I, I do know this. You know, there attri- there there's, there's aspects of music ministry. Right. There are aspects of of, of teaching. There there are things that um, you know they see on TV. Mm-hmm. And um, so far, it's been a, that's interesting. Uh, let's incorporate that as shallow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Like, rather than leaving, it's like, why leave when I got, you know, I, I, have, the, I have the chance of losing that, that you know, yeah. I enjoy. Uh, why not add another layer to yeah. what I have rather yeah. than, uh, of course, I, I do remember there's a, there's also a um, uh, there's there's also another another sermon I think your father preached about wherever you go you'll find yourself there. So <laughs> do you remember that? I don't know if you've ever heard that one. I don't remember. Uh, he, there are many that people bring up that I remember. That one I know. <laughs> if what you're leaving, you know, is likely something that you don't like about yourself, sooner or later you're going to show up wherever you are. And I, I said, my, my goodness, that that's profound. It is. You just uh, you're carrying that baggage with you. Yeah. Was his point. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, so you know, a lot of folks that uh, that I'm fairly certain as they drift from spot to fo- yeah. spot, uh, they end up leaving right about the time that they show up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna steal that sermon so, <laughs> so, so, somewhere down the line. I wish I had the text, <laughs> but uh, I died. <laughs> yeah, that that that, that is deep. That is deep. As I said, you serve as an adjunct professor at Southern University Law Center where you received your law degree, one of your two law degrees. Uh, what's it like teaching in the classroom? I have so much fun. Uh, and I think the, uh, I, uh, the folks that I, I had, a, had a bar meeting yesterday. I had a Baton Rouge bar luncheon. Okay. And I had uh, any number of, of former students. Uh, one in particular came up, and he teases me to no end. He... Uh, he uh, he teases me to know it. We have fun together. I have. There's now a um, 
uh, 03 to 2020 is a long time to do that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so that's a, that's a lot of folks. And, and we, I enjoy, you know, being, uh, at the bar with them. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a fun process, the teaching process. And perhaps, um, you know, I don't know, maybe I was intended to do that rather than everything else that I do. It's it's a completely different oh, it is. thing, and, and you have to be gifted toward it. I, uh, you said your father was an educator. My mother uh, was an educator. So so, so it's, it, it, it perhaps is in your genes. I'll but make, it, it, it's very it different from everything else that you do. I'll, I'll make it laugh. My, 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 uh, my, my father loved education, mm-hmm. but he... Uh, all of his kids, he suggested that we do something else, and it was, it was, uh, it was a bit disheartening for some of my siblings and cousins that he put through school because mm-hmm. he somehow counseled against education, not from the standpoint of it being great and noble and probably the best thing that you could ever do to influence younger folks, but mm-hmm. he 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 suggested that we needed to do something that would allow us to make a living to be able to take it. Make some money. He was, uh, you know, having all of those mouths to feed sure. and people to educate sure. uh, worried him. And he came from a generation, I'm sure. Uh, he wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. He often told me he did. As a matter of fact, he called me almost, you know, there was not three days that would pass when I was in law school that I didn't get a morning, early morning call for him from him such that he could experience my three years. What you were doing. That's cool. That's really cool. But there were such limitations as to what you could do in the time that he came up. Uh, uh, He did what he could, and that's what he said. Right. Uh, So in teaching, and you teach at a predominantly black uh, law school, and a lot of people don't don't recognize the fact that Southern is responsible for producing more African American attorneys uh, than just about any other school in the nation. Uh, that that's a pretty big deal. Uh, how does it make you feel to know that you are a part of such a historic institution? I have. Um, there were uh, in my program at Emory. Uh, it was a uh, it was a litigation program. It was interesting. Uh, there was um, one Southern grad there and one Howard grad there, and we pretty much uh, the way that our classes were structured. All of our finals were trials, and we were the just so happened to be the black trial team. Okay, um, but we competed against uh, folks from that had received their. JDs from um, uh, Michigan, uh, Stanford, um, Duke, Emory, and uh, we uh, were literally ranked. There were only, I think, maybe, you know, 12 of us Mm -hmm. in the program that year, 15, 18, it was less than 20. So I mean, it was, you know, top to bottom. You knew who you ranked. We right. typically were one or two in every class. Uh, so uh, it was a point of pride for both uh, the Southern grad and the Howard grad that uh, we weren't going to let those folks, uh, regardless of where they received their JD, beat right. us. Right. You're, you're impacting people's minds and people's futures in the classroom. Uh, preparing them to launch out and to do what we hope will be great and tremendous things. Uh, is there a particular student that you had that <laughs> comes to mind uh, who has over, over the 17 years that you have taught that uh, has made you particularly proud? <laughs> that is, uh, I hate, boy. That that's a that's a I shouldn't answer that. <laughs> All all I will say is, um, of the folks that I have taught, there are several that I wish that I could have hired. Uh, There is one that I did hire, uh, and he happens to attend 
church at Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Okay, well, then I know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> I know who that He's is. He's a bad boy. Well, that's good. That's he, good. Michael Victorian is, yeah. is a tremendously talented young man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I tend to agree I'll, with, I'll, with I'll you on that. I'll throw it out there. Let's, let, let, let's turn the page a little bit. You, 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 you have served as the, as the chairman of the board of Baton Jerry Foundation. I don't think that I've made it a secret that I have some concerns about some of the things that have taken place with Baton Jerry Foundation. Baton Jerry Foundation has tremendous uh, financial assets at their disposal, and they have tremendous influence in the direction that this city moves. And yet, I get frustrated, I get irritated at some of the things that the Baton Rouge Area Foundation will focus on and other things that seem to be left uh, hanging in the wind. Most recent thing, I don't have a problem with spending money to fix up City Park Lakes. But you're going to spend $50 million to fix up City Park Lakes, and and there are people who are homeless in this community, and we don't have the same motivation to do things like that. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm only asking you, what goes on in the decision-making process? It's not an unfair question. Um, uh, it is a, it's a fair point. But... Um, you know, BRAF is a, a, a donor services organization. Uh, that is a, a, a title that has a meaning. Um, it is, uh, by donor services, you know, the folks that give the money, it serves the folks that give the money. Um, you know, people, when they put their money uh, into Shiloh, uh, have in their mind a set of services that Shiloh will provide. Yes. And, you know, it is both, we, we, are, we provide a sea of safety net opportunities for folks. Um, we pay a whole lot of Entity bills yes. and water bills, and try to keep folks in their houses. Yes, um, those are the expectations that people have when we put our money where we put our money. Uh, if a donor at BRAF says, "I have a fund here, and I see a need here," I think we ought to, you know, channel our resources and tackle this need. And as a matter of fact, I'll take 10% of my fund mm -hmm. and put it towards that. Mm -hmm. And I invite other folks with funds to put 10% of their money and let's make this happen. Mm -hmm. You know, so BRAF, you know, a focus of its own, does it have it? Yes. It mm -hmm. is, you know, generational, you know, needs in a community. It has a deep interest there. Uh, does it have a set of donors that that have in their mind tackling that issue? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. But does it not have a set of donors that have in their mind putting their resources towards um, what they believe will be something that attracts uh, young folks that'll come here, bring their families mm -hmm. here, you know, create additional opportunities here? with the sort of lifestyle opportunities that come from having, you know, the premier uh, outdoor resource in the region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a set of donors that want to put their money towards that. Mm -hmm. And do I knock those folks that see that as being what they would like to do with their money? Um, whether I did or not, guess what? It's, it's their, their money. money. Yeah. <laughs> so you okay. so you really can't. You, so. But so, what you're suggesting is that there, there, there's an advocacy aspect to this, that people uh, pour their money into BRAF with the expectation that like-minded people will agree with them that certain projects uh, should be funded, should yes. be supported. So then, how does 
how do social justice issues get advocacy before BRAF uh, in, in sufficient quantities to, to make changes? I'll give you a very good example. Um, a BRAF donor uh, had um, a child with a mental illness, mm -hmm. substance abuse problem, mm -hmm. uh, ends up dying in a jail, um, not because of criminal activity, but because of, you know, substance abuse mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. Out of that comes an interest of that donor in Bridge Center. Uh, yeah. In producing something that changes that paradigm. Yeah. Is that a BRAF project? Yes. Was it donor focused? Yes. Yeah. That donor put up money, other donors joined in that effort. Two, three years later, you have Bridge Center. Right. What BRAF really is, is yes, a donor services organization, but it's also a think tank. Right. Is we're going to find the best national model for tackling this donor's concern. Mm -hmm. We're going to research it, see where their uh, model programs, and we're going to bring them to Baton Rouge. We're going to rally don other donors to develop the funding to make this happen. Now, Baton Rouge is not like other cities. Uh, other communities, in that Baton Rouge does not have the wealth that you think that Baton Rouge has. Mm -hmm. As an example, um, you go to Cleveland, Cincinnati, mm -hmm. they have several national uh, headquarters of entities there. Mm -hmm. We have big companies here, but they're not national headquarters here. Mm -hmm. What comes with a national headquarters? National headquarters becomes comes national focus, mm -hmm. comes a CEO, and a board of directors, mm -hmm. a whole C-suite. Mm -hmm. So in those cities, you get the you know you get a bit of the foundational money from the CEO's own pocket because mm -hmm. he or she likely makes five million a year plus stock and everything else that mm -hmm. goes along with it. Mm -hmm. You get a board that is well compensated in their own right, uh, you know, making, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year, one hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year to sit on the board, and that's their extra income, right? Because, you know, they're getting that two hundred grand for five, six, seven board meetings a year. That's all they do for that entity, right? And you know what that community gets? That community foundation likely gets a portion of every dollar that that board of directors and you get a sea of c-suite folks with the same sort of income earning mm -hmm. and you get a lot of the headquarters employees with that same earning so you get a lot of donations to a community foundation in those communities with those sorts of resources mm -hmm. that's not baton rouge baton rouge has a unique model in right. that baton rouge ties you know, the public dollars that it can have with private dollars that it's able to cobble together with, you know, national foundation double dollars that it's able to cobble together. Mm -hmm. And it's been able to do some tremendous things mm -hmm. in a community that doesn't have the sort of community wealth mm -hmm. that you would expect mm -hmm. for uh, Baton Rouge to be able to do. So, you know, a lot of people knock BRAF, but BRAF has been more influential and in being able to do more with fewer private dollars than you really think that it has mm -hmm. because it has an interesting model that it's been able to cobble together to work in a community like Baton Rouge. It's an interesting perspective and, and one that I honestly had not considered. One last, one last note on that. But when you think about BRAF dollars, you you know, you think about, you know, just like, um, you know, to put it into a church model, you know, folks give with their focus. Mm -hmm. A lot of the dollars are restricted. Yeah, they're designated. They're designated. I'm giving for scholarships. I'm giving for, you know, 
you know, this type of need. That is. So if you look at what is unrestricted and what you could, if, if there is a focus on something that no donor has suggested is their burning desire, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot carved out that you can just plow into a circumstance. So does, does BRAF take the position of being an advocate among the donors or within the donors to suggest that perhaps this is a project that uh, you should undertake or a group of you should undertake? Is it is it conceivable that, that BRAF could look at homelessness or pan, panhandling? Recently, uh, a couple months back, uh, Banner's Business Report did did, did uh, uh, an article on panhandling, and and the Downtown Business Association, whatever the, whatever name they have, were concerned that panhandlers were running business away from there, and they were looking at ways to move the panhandlers, not stop panhandling by getting people training and jobs, but move. The pan, which means that what you want to do is shift them away from downtown and move them someplace else where, where they're not bothering us. It, is it conceivable that within BRAF there there could be advocacy for training so that panhandlers could receive job skills so that they no longer have to panhandle? Yes, and is, and it is, and um, you know, you know, part of the scope of work of BRAF is. Um, sort of um, rather than reinventing the wheel and rather than just, you know, taking a a sea of dollars and pouring it into uh, a nonprofit without the appropriate infrastructure to to tackle an issue, uh, BRAF also has, yes, advocacy towards issues, but it also has... Um, it sort of undergirds uh, well-intentioned, decently functioning nonprofits to turn them into, you know, better functioning, um, more mission-driven nonprofits. And it has done just that for some of the nonprofits working in just the space that you're talking about. Um, And it makes it... um, you know, what do I mean by that? You know, do you have the sort of, of, of back office outfit in place to be able to handle a real um, capital campaign and drive to mm-hmm. do X? Mm-hmm. Can you put together that campaign? Can you, you know, can, if you had the funds, would you, would you be able to appropriately use the, do you have the sorts of leadership in place uh, that could take you from the, the this level to that level. Mm-hmm. Those are the sorts of trainings that the BRAF staff um, convenes groups that work in that space, funds groups that work in that space, uh, supports by providing you know any number of you know national search opportunities to provide folks to head them head entities, you know, folks reach out to BRAF and say, look, uh, we are losing our leadership Mm -hmm. or uh, BRAF, our board needs training Mm -hmm. on what they ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the sort, that's that's a whole nother, you know, area of work that BRAF has done for years. And um, there are any number of folks, um, let's put it this way. Um, something that I'm familiar with. Uh, when I was, um, BRAF did a um, training for 100 black men. And following that training, BRAF put over 100 grand into 100 black men mm-hmm. um, right after I led the entity. Um, at that time, you know, it was. Uh, working hard to support um, programs that benefited 20, 30 kids. Mm-hmm. Um, with that assistance, and not only BRAF assistance, but BRAF leveraged you know, the BRAF connection 
to bring in uh, the local and national foundation. Right. You know, the 100 sits on, you know, the 100 has a uh, $600,000 a year budget now and has impacts 200 plus kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's in, that's in less than a decade. Right. You know, was that sort of training and support and undergirding bringing assistance to help with uh, relationships with Wilson Foundation, uh, Blue Cross Foundation, mm -hmm. or the possible funders. Now, Brav could have just said, here's some dollars. But instead, let me help teach you how to use the resources you have, leverage it with other opportunities, mm -hmm. and you can fish at a different level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In many ways, Brad. Does Brad do that for other folks? You know, the 100 is just but one example. I'm, I'm sure they do. A whole list of folks. And, and I'm sure that, they, you know, because you are within Brad, you, you have a different perspective than those who are on the outside looking in. Uh, Get in. <laughs> I just know Become that. Become a member. I just know that there are tremendous. <laughs> Needs that exist within this Nothing community. Nothing prohibits anybody from becoming a member of Brow. It's, it's a hundred dollars. Okay, I'm gonna take you up on the challenge. Uh, I, I, I'm going to do that very thing. I think that the, that there could, are opportunities. Could I, could that I give exist. you this? this yes. One little anecdote. Yes. I, I, my relationship with Braff was through the 100. I asked. Uh, did not know him from anybody, asked for assistance to take some kids on a trip. Called the fella out of the blue, mm -hmm. did not know him. Uh, asked, he, he asked, how much do you need? And I hemmed and hawed and was about to turn a two-minute conversation into a 30-minute conversation when he said, how much do you need? Mm -hmm. How much do you need? How much do you need? I need 10 grand. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, uh, come to my office at 2 o'clock. And I, I said, well, I got X, Y, and Z. Do you want 10 grand? <laughs> come to my office at 2 o'clock. Mm -hmm. Well, I came to his office at 2 o'clock. That day I had 10 grand to take a bunch of kids on a trip. Um, and from that relationship, uh, it, it has been, you know, you know, an interesting, I don't know, 11 years of board service. Mm -hmm. um, am I enamored with everything that I see? Um, there's, I'm, I'm not enamored with everything I see in my own house. Sure. Um, but I can tell you there's, uh, there's far more good that I see done mm -hmm. than not. And I see a community resource that we would be so... Um, this place would be far worse out, off without the efforts of the entity than it is with. Brav has in many ways uh, replaced, I know that it still exists, but it has replaced United Way. Um, uh, 15, 20 years ago, most charitable dollars were, f were funneled through the United Way. And now uh, it seems like you don't hear a whole lot about United Way. You you hear far more about Brav, which I imagine is better because uh, those dollars are are intended specifically for the needs that exist within this community. Uh, what other entities do you see in Baton Rouge that have a similar mission to Brav? I think our charitable foundation has a similar mission. I think this church has a similar mission. It is... Um, Interesting that you say that. Oh, this church is... Um, has a tremendous history of um, sort of taking folks from where they are, um, um, providing them, you know, not only... You know, keeping the lights on, mm -hmm. but saying, wait a minute, there's something systemic here. 
you know, we have a, you know, unlike other folks, we have a social worker that sees the types of needs that led to the issue that they, that the person has in order that they don't end up every month leading $20 to keep the lights on. Right. That's all, you know, you know at its core, um, RAF is trying to do. Um, you know, its focus yeah, isn't 100% in any given space because its donors have no, you know, they, their interests are as diverse as anybody else's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I have an appreciation for that. Do I wish that... Um, Every every dollar could be spent to meet the area of greatest need. No, because my view of the greatest need would not have been, you know, someone with a child who died in jail. Because mm-hmm. I wouldn't. That's that had that in my experience. Mm-hmm. I would not have known of that. Mm-hmm. That need would have gone unmet if my view of what the greatest need was the greatest need. Um, so I, I hesitate to be uh, critical because I can only speak from my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and what my experience is, uh, have I not seen folks that, if can I walk outside, can I walk across the street and see folks that need you know, the door to their house put on such that they don't take the door off to walk outside, put the door back on at night right. to make certain that nobody breaks in. Yeah, would I like RAF dollars to go towards those sorts of home infrastructure needs? Yeah, but the person with the door would likely say, you know, I'm fine with my door. I need something to eat. Mm-hmm. So so where is the greatest need? Mm-hmm. I would immediately say, man, you can't just do that. I was like, man, I've been doing that for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Could you feed me? Mm-hmm. There is plenty of need. Let's just, you know, wherever we are, whatever space we serve, wherever we, you know, view as our mission, let's best serve that mission. Mm-hmm. Interesting, uh, interesting perspective. Um, you serve as chairman of the board of our charitable foundation, which you just likened on a smaller scale uh, to BRAF. Tell me what it is that attracted you to the charitable foundation. I thought it. Um, I thought it unique within black churches to have. Um, something that could be um, akin to, I mean, if you look at um, Catholic services, mm-hmm. you know, a charitable arm of the of the Catholic faith, um, to have something like that within the black church, I think, is speaks well of well of Shiloh. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the types of activities engaged in other faith-based charitable. Um, Opportunities. I think we ought to. Uh, we have those needs, and largely they are attempting to serve those needs. I think we can serve those needs as well as or better uh, with our our charitable dollars. Mm-hmm. I think we ought to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, what things are going on? I know them, but I want you to share them with the public. Uh, what things are going on within the Charitable Foundation that 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 you, we are particularly focused on right now? We are working hard to um, develop opportunities that change the footprint of our community, and in so doing, our community, in particular, the area in and around where this campus sits, where Shiloh sits. Right. Um, and you talk about, you know, blight and homelessness, you know, we're trying to put some folks, we're trying to put some housing and some businesses and some opportunities for kids to learn right in this footprint such that it does a couple of things, um, several things, one of which is we're looking at some senior living, we're looking at some you know, living for, uh, that is affordable in this community Mm -hmm. and making certain that as 
the price of living here rises, that there is affordable housing very close by, uh, such that the folks that uh, uh, want to walk to Shallow can live in this community and continue to walk to Shallow. Uh, looking at business opportunities that uh, provide a revenue stream to pour back into the foundation right. to do even more good. Um, you know, doing, you know, giving away money is great, but doesn't happen as if the coffers are dry. And it is hard to imagine, you know, uh, just continuing to, to churn away and churn away and churn away until finally you have nothing left to give. Right. Uh, if the you know the the you got to fill the bucket, right? And looking for uh, ways of non-traditional ways of filling the bucket, uh, I think, and passive opportunities for filling the bucket. I was talking to a fellow today about a real estate opportunity for a nonprofit. And he he said, you know, using a, a different model, he said, yeah, what you need to do is, you know, do as some uh, other businesses do, and you own the chiller in a development. Um, you know, you have a retail development, you own the plant that, you own the plant that powers everything. Mm -hmm. And it's just like any other utility. Every, everybody that rents there has to pay for the utilities. <laughs> yeah. You, in order to keep the lights on, in order to keep hot water, you you pay me. Right. And that is a source of revenue for that real estate owner that will never die as long as he has a tenant in it on his on his, you know, facility. Uh, that was the whole backbone behind Perkins Row. <laughs> that 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 is that is a tremendous example of yeah. um, you know. A, a a real opportunity to to to, to leverage something for a nonprofit. Uh, you got a plot of land, you know, own the thing that makes it go. Right. And that's a revenue stream that you can plow into your programs. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a model not too different than than that BRAF entity employs mm -hmm. using uh, real estate as revenue generator through rents for other things to plow back into your program. Mm -hmm. uh, because giving alone is good, but giving alone in a community that may not have the Procter & Gamble's headquarters is you gotta be more creative. And uh, having a real estate development with rents coming in is a good way to uh, have a re revenue stream that mm -hmm. allows you to keep giving. Mm -hmm. We're about to wrap up. You have a son and a daughter. Uh, daughter's in college. Son is about to graduate from high school, I believe. Do you have aspirations for your children to settle down in the Baton Rouge area? As, as you survey Baton Rouge, as you survey the community, you, you, are, you are intimately involved in various aspects of the community. Is this a place where you would like to see your children I know that the choice is theirs. Oh yes. But as as someone who's involved in this city, is 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 this a place where you would like to see your children reside? I have. Uh, I, I hope to. I have and hope to continue to put things in place that um, uh, whether it be working for someone else or working for what their family has. Uh, they have opportunities to be right here. Um, you know, as a unit, I think we enjoy um, more than anything else in the world being around each other. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know a whole lot of families say that. I know my um, my son is at his happiest uh, when the four of us are together, which is just a hilarious thing. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, as as much as he. Um, you know, teases his father to no end. He is at his best when his sister and his mother and his father are together. So would I enjoy it to be able to see them here? Mm -hmm. Do I think that uh, Baton Rouge offers the sorts of opportunities uh, that I would like for them to have? They're here. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, unlike in some other places, you got to be a bit more creative to find them. My career path has not been a straight line to anywhere. Uh, I've had to, you know, sidestep, duck, go under, go through, knock down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is it would it would it have been perhaps a straighter line someplace else? Yeah, um, but is there opportunity here uh, for them to thrive? Um, interesting word thrive yeah um there's opportunity here do they see it you know i don't know uh, will they ultimately be here i i, I don't know but I, I do know um after my mother and father died uh my daughter had an interest in attending college she had opportunities some of everywhere mm -hmm. um but after my mother and father died she's like you know um being close to family is not a not a bad thing. Being close to home is not a bad thing. I think I'll go to Tulane. I was like, where'd that come from? Yeah. Um, but I think it was sort of it was it's an interesting sort of you know notion that the loss of of my folks you know made her decide that being in New Orleans and close was what she wanted to do mm -hmm. um, because she enjoys. Uh, the opportunity to run on, run on home, and she enjoys the fact that you know, I might show up unannounced. <laughs> I can't close without talking about this. You're a Cowboys fan. I love the Cowboys. <laughs> a lifelong Cowboys you're, you're, fan. You're one of the few people around here who I can get along with because, <laughs> because we're both Cowboys fans. What do you think is going to happen with Dak Prescott? Do you think that we're going to sign him and keep him? Or you know, the rumor mill has suggested that perhaps Tom Brady would be available to Dallas. And I don't know if I want a 42-year-old quarterback to lead my team. I have um, – <laughs> I think the game, in my humble opinion, has passed Tom Brady by. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, the sort of success he had as a pocket passer – uh, the sort of numbers that he generated in years past, you know, I could be wrong. He could be proved me wrong with a season that he has next season if he chooses to sign another contract with the Patriots or someplace else. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the day of that, I think, have ended. The game has moved on. The yeah. TV, you know, opportunities, you know, folks want to see a, a quarterback who is who actually has some <laughs> athleticism about yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't see that in a, in a Brady. Do I see that in Dak? Dak can make it happen. Um, not as mobile as I would like, but I, 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 I see He was pretty mobile at Mississippi State. Well, he, they, they, they have, he, they he have gave LSU fits. Yeah, and I think that they have constricted him in Dallas, and they're trying to create a pocket passer, make a pocket passer out of him. But I, I get worried as the days go by that he's not – signed to a long-term deal. I, I don't understand it either. I, I think he he ought to be, uh, quote-unquote, does he deserve, you know, a, 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 a big contract? Mm -hmm. um, you know, he is in a tough market. He is. I mean, it is hard for folks to, uh, I mean, it's, it's you, know, you know, New York, Dallas, you're, you're, you know, even though Dallas is not the world's largest media market, it is. It is. It is a place where it's hard to play well, football. What is and he has the, done well. The Dallas is the sixth largest city in the country, Six something like that. that it's not a pretty large market, yeah. But it's not L.A. It's not. It is not yeah. New York. Yeah. yeah. But I can tell you this, and it is not a. You know, as as far as the. Uh, it's not where all of your, you know, your CBS, NBC call their home. Yeah. But I will tell you this. Uh, he has, um, is he what the Cowboys need in order to be successful? I say yes. I do, too. I think he has all the tools. Uh, does he need uh, the, the type of scheme that allows him to utilize? You know, he's a pragmatic quarterback. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm not a runner, I'm not a passer, I'm going to move the ball down the field, you know, whatever I need to do in order to make – he's a make-it-happen sort of dude. Right. If he were given the freedom to make it happen, 
I think he would make it happen every set of downs. Yeah. But if he is constricted to, yes, dude, you are you are using your legs too much. Yeah. I, I need you to sit there and throw the ball. Uh, that takes away his ability to create and make it happen. I agree with you. I agree with you. Well, 24 years of, of, of uh, mediocrity and frustration. It's got to come to an end sooner, sooner or later. My son, I have uh, created in him a Cowboys fan. Well, you did better than I did. <laughs> the Cowboys have to have success before my son just loses it. And, and I, I, I was like, he, they have not had success during his lifetime. Yeah. So I, I am, I'm, show me, show him. He has to look at YouTube to see the real Cowboys. <laughs> well, the last Cowboys Super Bowl that they won, my oldest son was sitting on my knee. We watched the game with him on my knee. He says, Dad, that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I was on your knee, but I didn't know what was going on. And at the age of four or five, he, he said, do I have to? like the Cowboys or can I pick my own team? Mm. Son, you can pick whatever team you want. It's okay. I would not have answered that way. <laughs> he picked the Philadelphia Eagles. <clears throat> so there's a war in my house twice a year. <clears throat> twice a year. But uh, can, can, I, can, I, can I give you one more? And we've not talked about this. I don't know that we've ever talked about this, but um, my daughter has as her dream job to be a Division One college football coach. Really? No, we have not talked about that. And what does that come from? Years of watching football on my lap. <laughs> college ball. Yeah. And uh, she, now she is a Saints fan. Uh, but, um, that is he a, said quietly. <laughs> she intends to, you know, the last plan was to... Um, and, and I have a relationship with uh, some folks at the NCAA. Mm -hmm. Don't ask me how. God is good. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm thinking she is. She has as uh, her minor health care compliance because she wants to, you know, she wants to learn the compliance game. Mm -hmm. She intends to get into uh, NCAA compliance. She intends to go to law school. That's the latest plan. That's incredible. That, no, you never shared that with me before. That, that is, she is, um, a lot of folks who know her well know that uh, it is hard to watch a football game with her. I like the experience sometimes. <laughs> Just to sit there and listen to, to, to what she knows. The X's and O's. Yeah. She will, she, uh, she, she knows more than I do. <laughs> that is, she is a fabulous little girl. That's wonderful. Dennis, thank you for taking the time to come and share with us. I know you're an extremely busy person. I really appreciate the fact that you took some time out to come and share it with us today. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time.